We're going to go backwards a little ways in the book of Psalms today. Back to Psalm 11. I was commenting this week that there are there are a lot of well what would you say a lot of reasons to be upset a lot of reasons to be afraid of the future a lot of unknowns about what the future holds uh and I had a, a friend say to me that uh, in spite of some actually legitimately good work that uh, has been done in the government in the past three or four years, um, that the last few weeks have made him feel like we lost, is, is what he said. <laughs> we lost. How, how come it feels like we lost? Um, and so I got to thinking about that and I decided, you know, it would be a good, it would be a good time to address some of those, some of those questions that come up. They come up on a regular basis for God's people. Uh, and two different people suggested that Psalm 11 would be a, a great place to turn to, and so I thought, yeah, I think, I think we will go back to Psalm 11. We'll revisit that. It, it was only about a year and a half ago that I last preached on Psalm 11, uh, but I think that it will be helpful and strengthening to all of us this morning. Now, before I read it, let me, let me make a couple of more comments. Many of us grow weary, and many of us are tempted to give up hope concerning the work that we're trying to do for the Lord. You think of what the work is that you're trying to do for the Lord, and it might be the work of raising children, it might be the work of providing for your family. It might be the work of fighting against indwelling sin. It might be uh, the work of teaching. It might be any number of different things. But all that we do, right, whether we eat or drink, we are to do to the glory of the Lord, and we are to do it as serving Him, right? So whatever you have been given to do, you are to do it as work for the Lord, and you should not become hopeless about it. You should not become hopeless about the work. In spite of the temptations and the lies that Satan tells, and some of those, some of the biggest temptations come when other people come and say the very thing that you've been tempted to think, that it's hopeless. When other people come and say the very thing that you've been tempted by, 
maybe that the wicked have won. That is a time of great temptation for us. And David faced some situations in his life that definitely seemed hopeless if we are thinking without faith. They definitely seemed hopeless. And so here we learn from him how to respond to supposedly hopeless situations how to respond to such temptations, how to respond to such faithless counselors. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 11. For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. David starts this psalm with the declaration that he is taking refuge in the Lord. He is taking refuge in the Lord. Men are telling him that there is no hope. What do you do if there is no hope? You give up, right? You quit. You stop working. You remember the old uh, saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Well, David, David is not insane. And yet so often that sort of that sort of saying can be pushing us to hopelessness, pushing us to think we're insane. Right? Now what I want to what I want to do is I want to use David's life and some events from David's life uh, as a reminder to us of all of the reasons that David had to remember and, and, to, and to believe that he wasn't insane. And then I want us to remember them for ourselves, not just from his life, but from our own lives, the many things 
that God has done for us. So now, kids, I have this question for you, okay? In David, you remember King David? You remember his life? Remember some of the stories of his life? Can you think of, can you think of times where it seems like David really had no hope of doing what he needed to do? Where it seemed impossible to do what he, what he was going to try to do? What what kinds of things did David did David try to do? Yeah. Yeah, he fought Goliath, didn't he? And everybody else said that that was stupid. Right? Everybody else, the whole army of Israel said that guy is crazy. That guy's crazy. Going up against a giant, and not just going up against a giant, but going up against a giant without what? Without a sword, without a spear, without any armor, without a shield. But what did David have? A slingshot, a rock, what else? David didn't trust in the slingshot and the rock, did he? He trusted in the Lord. David had the Lord on his side. But that's not the only time. That's just probably the best known time that David seemed like he had no hope. Right? Can you think of any others? Yeah? A lion, yeah. And he tells that story. He tells that story, right? Before he fights Goliath, doesn't he? He says, the Lord protected me then, the Lord will protect me now. When it was, the, oh, when it was only his little group of guys, actually they called them men, eh, against Saul's whole army, the whole combined army of Israel, right? All the Israelite armies versus David and a small band of men. And yet, God preserved him safely through. All those times that Saul and the army were hunting him and trying to kill him. So when David starts this psalm, with that simple declaration, in the Lord I take refuge, that is something that he has done many times in his life, isn't it? That is something that he has seen bear good fruit in his life because God has been his refuge. God has been his stronghold, his salvation. And so, right at the beginning of this psalm, David is saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm not losing hope. I'm not going to quit because I believe that God will rescue me. God is my refuge. Now, a refuge is a place that you 
run to to be safe, right? So it's not just that David is going to uh, go out by faith. It's that David does feel the need to run back by faith. Run back to the Lord. He takes refuge in him. Now, it's obvious right in that same first verse that there are men who are telling David that there is no hope. And this isn't the only place where we see wicked men saying these kinds of things to a righteous man, to a man of faith, to a man who is taking refuge in the Lord. In uh, the book of Nehemiah, we read him saying, we read an account of a man uh, being told there's no hope. Here's what he says. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Nehemiah's response is, but I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Now, Shemaiah is particularly sneaky, isn't he? Particularly sneaky because it sounds like he's, his counsel is to flee to the Lord, doesn't it? Let us go into the temple. Let's go into the temple and close the doors. Let's hide from our enemies. There's, there's no hope. They're going to come. They're going to get us. But Nehemiah's response is, no way. I'm not going to go hide in the temple. That is not having the Lord as my refuge That is not trusting in him. Should a man like me flee? Now, is there a time to flee? Is there a time to flee? Absolutely, there is a time to flee. There is a time to flee. David fled many times from the face of Saul, right? But his hope was in the Lord. Now, so we can, we can apply the book of Ecclesiastes here and say there is, a, there is a time to fight and there is a time to run away, right? But Nehemiah is the leader of the Israelites And the work of rebuilding Jerusalem in the face of God's enemies. So for him to run away at this time would be to give up the work. 
You see that? It would be for him to give up the fight. It would be for him to quit. To quit trusting in God. So as David continues in this psalm and he says, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. It sounds a lot like what is said to Nehemiah by Shemaiah, right? They're coming in the dark. They're going to get you. It's like the worst ghost story, right? Because it's not a ghost story, it's real life. They are real enemies. They are really out to get you. They are really dangerous. And then the clincher. That, that most hopeless. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, there's a reason that I've gone to Nehemiah, right? <laughs> Think about the connection between Nehemiah and this statement. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What was Nehemiah doing again? Nope. Nope, that was David. Nehemiah wasn't fighting a giant. What was Nehemiah doing? Yeah, Liam. Building a wall. And what had happened to that wall? It had gotten destroyed. It fell down, right? The foundations of Jerusalem had been destroyed, hadn't they? The foundations had been destroyed. And Nehemiah was a righteous man. And what did Nehemiah do when the foundations were destroyed? He rebuilt them. So that's the, that's the answer to this question. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Rebuild them. Now that's hopeful, isn't it? Doesn't that give you hope for the future? But the temptation here is strong, isn't it? I mean, it sounds all well and good to look back to Nehemiah and be like, yeah, I mean, that guy was pretty strong. That guy was pretty, pretty tough. That guy, you know, he knew what it was like to be a man. But he also came at the end, right? After they'd been sitting ruined for however many years, What about all the righteous people between that time when they were first destroyed and when they finally got to be rebuilt? Or or even worse, what about the people who were there, the righteous people who were there as the foundations were being destroyed? Right? And so it's, it's right then that you think, well, you know, yeah, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's a lot of ways to to spin this into being still no hope for us, right? So what does it mean for the foundations to be destroyed today? What does it mean for the foundations to be destroyed in your life? 
for that to be something that is tempting to you? Well, to put it generically, it means the world's falling apart around you, right? The world's falling apart around you. Everything important for life and health and happiness has disappeared or is disappearing. I mean, that's the foundations, right? It's, it's pretty bad. But we are, we're pretty used to living a good life, aren't we? And so we could be tempted to think that the foundations are destroyed with a lot less than that, right? It doesn't take uh, losing everything that you have, like Job, to think that the foundations are destroyed when you're an American in the 21st century. This is, this is where, you know, our, our somewhat self-aware understanding of first world problems comes from, right? You, you think, oh no, I'm going to have to move. It's the end of the world. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that will make us feel that way, right? Just that, that pit of dread in your stomach. Or, I'm going to have to change jobs, or I lost my job, or uh, we're going to have to, uh, you know, stop paying for Netflix. Are you kidding? What am I going to do on the weekends and evenings and holidays and afternoons? Now, I'm mocking because it's silly, and it's, it's mockable, right? Is it really that big of a deal? No, that's not what it means for the foundations to be destroyed, is it? And yet, it's even just that sort of thing to be like, oh, I can't believe it. It's just, a, it's just too much. God is just asking too much of me to face this, this trial. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What does it mean for the foundations to actually be destroyed? Think about the earth-shaking things that could happen to you. Many of you may think of the loss of a child or a husband or wife or some other family member. But life can get worse than that. Not too long ago in family devotions, we read about when uh, the Israelites were besieged. And we read of the king tearing his clothes. When he found out that the people were eating their children. The foundations were truly destroyed, weren't they?
And yet it's precisely at that moment that he is told that the Lord will deliver them. And that he will deliver them overnight. That everything will be different. So what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? It's interesting that there's no answer to that question in this psalm, is there? Yeah, that's the that's the tempting accusation uh, that you know the 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 call to hopelessness. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David doesn't say, well, you know, keep building. Or David doesn't say, you know, keep trying to protect the walls as they're being torn down. David's answer is very simple and doesn't really seem like an answer to that question. He simply says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Why is that an answer? Why is that David's answer? Is that what you respond with when you see the foundations being destroyed? The Lord is in his holy temple. He is in his holy temple. That has to mean something to you for that to be an answer, doesn't it? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. What does that mean? The foundations may be destroyed, but he is sovereign. He is not destroyed. He is not challenged. He is not having a hard time figuring out what to do or responding to this unexpected development. It is not unexpected. It is from his hand. And he is bringing about his 
good plan. One day he will shake the heavens and the earth. And then we will find out what it looks like for the foundations to be destroyed, won't we? The Lord will be at that time, as always, in his holy temple. How is this an answer to that temptation to think that there is nothing that we can do to give up hope, to quit? It's an answer because he is sovereign, but it's also an answer because we must worship him. You cannot help but worship the Lord when you come into his presence. You remember that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And you realize that there's those who will bow the knee now and there's those who will bow the knee later, but every last person will bow the knee. The righteous and the wicked together will acknowledge that he is Lord. When they come into his presence, they will fall on their faces and they will say, the Lord, he is God. You remember that's what happens when Elijah is offering a sacrifice and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice the wood, the stones, the water. The whole question was, who is God? Is Baal God or is Yahweh, Jehovah, God? And the people said, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is God. But did they begin to worship him? It was right at that point that he thought, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? You remember, that's what, that's what he thought, right? He goes, God, I alone am left. And God says, no. No, I have kept thousands for myself, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Thousands. Are the foundations actually destroyed? 
Or is God simply at work in a way that we don't like? And one of the ways that he is at work that we generally don't like is by removing all of our crutches, right? All of the things that we tend to put our hope in instead of him. Gideon had to give up 99% of his army from thousands down to a couple hundred, right? Why? So that God could demonstrate that he is in his holy temple. And so when God takes things away from you, when God takes things away from me, that we want, that we love, are you going to respond and say, oh, the foundations? Or are you going to respond and say, the Lord is in his holy temple. Naked I came into the world, and naked I will leave the world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's right here that David continues on, and he, he doesn't just say God is in charge. He, he also then says God is going to judge the wicked. Now this serves two very, very important purposes for us. One is to give us hope because Remember, the threat is that the enemies of God are going to win, right? And and David's response to that is, no way. You must be out of your mind. God does not lose to his enemies. The, The reigning arrows that you're so afraid of, God will rain arrows down on them. So on the one hand, it's, just, just a further reminder, he is in control. He will not lose. But on the other hand, it's also very helpful to us not to give in to temptation, isn't it? Remembering that he will judge all men. And so do you fear the Lord? The faithless counselor to David is sure that the wicked will rain down arrows and that there is no chance to avoid them. It's right there. Remember, I keep saying this is a temptation that we face. I tend to think of the news as broadly in two categories, Fox News and NPR. I put them into those two categories. You pick your, pick your, pick your two groups if you want. You'll, you'll understand what I'm saying, uh, in a minute. <clears throat> Fox, Fox News says, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And NPR says, we're coming for you. That, that's how I see the news, basically. Those two categories. On the one hand, you've got the wicked, and they're saying, yep, 
we're going to get you. They're, they're bringing the threats. You, you could use Vox News if you want instead of NPR if you read, if you read your news. Uh, and, and then Fox, Fox is like, ah, run away, right? The news isn't, the news isn't godly. It's not helpful to you. My counsel would be, stop, stop, stop watching, stop reading, stop listening, just stop. Because neither one of them is helpful to you, right? Fox News, if you don't mind me using them as a, as a stand-in for the, for the false counselor of David, okay? You know, the, the, the person that, that does their best to appear to try to be an ally, is a temptation. It's a temptation to give up hope. It's a temptation to turn to away from God and to turn to all sorts of other methods, all sorts of other hopes for what will accomplish the, the salvation of the foundations, Right? And so it's, it's when, you, when you realize that that's a temptation, you realize that it is a sin to fall into it. And you don't want to be one of the wicked that God will judge. You want to avoid that sin. You want to flee that sin. The wicked have no fear. But the one that God hates is in a fearful position because God is filling up a cup that they will drink down to its dregs. Now that either gives you hope or it causes you to shudder in fear. Those are the only two options when you think of the wicked draining a cup of judgment from God's hand. God is... God's punishment is a fearful thing, isn't it? He has no lack of ability to make it hurt, to make it last. Just as he has no lack of ability to give good things to his children, so he has no lack of ability to pour out wrath. On the wicked. And so that cup ought to be a scary thing. If you ever have coffee that was made on a campfire instead of, you know, like civilized people, and, and the grounds are still in it, or if you have tea and your filter is a little bit, a little bit too big of holes, you know what the dregs are, right? I have tea a lot, and uh, there's almost always dregs at the bottom of the cup. And so you drink that cup, you drink it most of the way, and then you don't, you're careful not to drink the 
the last little bit, right? The dregs, you don't drink. Because they're gross. You don't want that in your mouth. That grit. Or maybe you've been at the beach and you've seen that there's a little bit of sand that's gotten in your water bottle. See it down at the bottom. You're careful not to drink it down to the very bottom, aren't you? But God will make his enemies drain it to the last drop. In Ezekiel 23, we read, You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister, Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. David says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. We read of this several places in the Bible. And it's a scary thought, isn't it? And yet, the upright will behold his face after he judges them. To see the Lord's face is to see your true foundation. To see the Lord's face is to see that the foundations, he is not destroyed. To see the Lord's face is to have everything else burned away. But to receive the Lord is to receive everything. So, David's false, faithless counselor is still around, still tempting the people of God to give up hope, to turn away, to be afraid, but not of God. The enemies are still there. They're still threatening to rain down arrows. And the answer for the righteous is still the same. The Lord is in his holy temple. And so we enter in and we seek his face. The upright will behold his face. He is the rock. I remember the old, some, some old choruses that I grew up singing. One of them is uh, the one that we sing in our family devotions a lot recently. Kind of, you know, kids like to repeat things. But <clears throat> the uh, Don't Build Your House on the Sandy Land. You know that song, that old song. You're supposed to build your house on the rock. Jesus is the rock, right? Build your life, build your 
house on that foundation. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, right, the rock comes and crushes the mountain, you know, crushes the statue and becomes a mountain. It is, it is a rock. It is the rock of our foundation. And so don't believe them when they say the foundations are destroyed. Don't believe them. Put your faith in him. You will see his face. Let's go to him in prayer.